Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 60. You and what army? Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, we have to welcome the new members of my Patreon House of Lords, Baroness Amy, Baron Matt, and Baron Simon. They, along with every other patron, receive ad-free podcasts. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. When last we met, outside of our bonus episode on Cromwell and Christmas, we saw how Charles I, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, had worn out his welcome in the custody of the Scottish Covenanters. He'd lost the Civil War, and his enemies now presented him with the terms of his defeat, the Newcastle Propositions. These included the abolition of episcopacy, parliamentary control of the English military for 20 years, parliamentary nomination of the king's officials, the ending of any negotiations with the Irish Confederacy, the annulment of the cessation, complete parliamentary control over the Irish War and the exclusion of the Scots from it, and that the king signed the Solemn League and Covenant. But then, Charles did something really annoying. He just refused them. The terms were just unacceptable to him, so he refused to agree to them. So what if he'd lost the war? What exactly were his enemies going to do? He'd always be king, and they'd have to come to terms with that fact. So, Charles carried on winding down the clock, convinced that eventually he'd find a deal that he could accept, or that he'd use one part of the anti-Charles coalition to defeat the rest. Eventually, though, his Scottish hosts got tired of waiting. Aware that their continued occupation of the north of England was increasingly unpopular, they cut their losses. For a gargantuan price of £400,000 to pay off the cost of their intervention, the Army of the Covenant agreed to withdraw back across the border, and they left Charles behind. But Charles wasn't necessarily wrong to see fractures in the coalition. His enemies were deeply divided. The Scots from the English, and the English and Scots from the Irish Confederates. But within these kingdoms there was division, 
beneath the surface of Scottish politics was a deeply fractious situation, one which would in time lead to the outbreak of war. Among the Confederates, the War Party, led by the Papal Nuncio, Archbishop Rinaccini, was dominant, but they'd already had to execute a coup to deny an alliance with the King. And in England, Parliament's House of Commons was a house divided. The Presbyterians on one hand, who desired and demanded religious uniformity on a Calvinist and quasi-Presbyterian system, and the Independents, who believed that one of the main things they'd fought the Civil War for had been personal religious liberty against a tyrannical state church. This was not just a theological dispute. Parliament's victorious army, the New Model Army, was increasingly seen by the Presbyterians as a threat, and by the Independents as an ally. The Presbyterians had already tried, unsuccessfully, to neuter the military that had just won them the war. In today's episode, we'll start the ball rolling on quite how badly the Presbyterians mishandled the new model army. With the death of the Earl of Essex, the leading light of the Presbyterian faction in Parliament was Denzel Halls. We've seen Halls before. Before personal rule, he had been one of the MPs who had drafted the Petition of Right and held the Speaker down in his chair. During the political crisis before the Civil War, he was one of the five members which the King had attempted, and embarrassingly failed, to arrest. He'd been one of the leading Presbyterian members of the Commons throughout the war, and now that Essex was dead, his influence only increased. After a series of recruiter elections, by-elections to replace MPs who had retired, died of natural causes or in the Civil War, and those who had been purged due to supporting the King in that war, the Commons was now flooded with new faces. Now, these new arrivals tended to come from royalist constituencies, since many of their predecessors had been purged for their allegiance. For voters from these regions, the Presbyterian approach of quickly making a deal with the King, disbanding the standing army, and returning to normality suited them down to the ground. This meant that Halls and the other Presbyterian leaders could usually rely on these moderate votes in the Commons, giving them an advantage over the Independents. Halls' strategy, according to Kishlansky, was brilliantly simple. Charles had made it very clear that he would never concede his beloved bishops or control over the military. So, Halls decided not to give him the option. The bishops had, after all, already been abolished by parliamentary ordinance the previous October. The sale of their lands, which paid for the withdrawal of the Scots and the transfer of the king, also removed the financial pillar which their restoration would need. It would be much more difficult for the king to simply decree that the episcopacy was back when the bishops' lands were now in a multitude of private and influential hands. The Assembly of Divines concluded its Confession of Faith, which Parliament would approve in November. Meanwhile, the last military concern was Ireland. Divisions of the New Model Army would be dispatched to the rebellious kingdom under Presbyterian commanders. In England, most strongholds would be demolished, and those strategic positions which had to be manned would be commanded by Presbyterians. All other forces in England would be disbanded. Then the king would be presented with a fait accompli, which he could not easily reverse, but also one which didn't press on his conscience. He wasn't being asked to concede on these key issues, because they would already be settled. Everything else could then be negotiated, and the king could be invited back to his throne. This was clever, but Halls 
dramatically underestimated the resistance he would face from the new model army. Perhaps buoyed up by anti-army feeling in London, where the London Common Council, which we mentioned in episode 258, had recently come out against the army, now Halls, backed by Presbyterians in Parliament, struck. On the 18th of February, the Commons, after an all-day debate, carried a motion which stated that only 5,400 cavalry and 1,000 dragoons from the new model army would be maintained in England as garrison forces. Everything else, the infantry and the rest of the mounted soldiers, would be given a choice. Disband, or serve in Ireland. Further, the motion stated that no MP could serve in the army, reinforcing the self-denying ordinance, and that no officer could be exempt from swearing the Solemn League and Covenant. Exceptions had been made on both counts during the war, but that was in the past. Obviously, Cromwell would fall afoul of both of these conditions, but so would Henry Ireton and many other independents in the army. And, very importantly, the ordinance did not offer to settle the army's outstanding pay or pensions. With the passing of this ordinance, the new model army would cease to be a threat a deal with the king could be reached, and the rebels in Ireland would be crushed. Except there was one very important group of people who had not been consulted. That's right, it's that very same bunch of veterans with a load of guns. When the army received word of this motion, they had one very important question for the politicians in Westminster. You and what army? Because we are your army. The new model had just won the war, and there was no sizeable parliamentary force outside of the new model. And even before Parliament passed this deeply insulting motion, the officers and enlisted men had grievances. Many of them, like I said, hadn't been paid in months, and with the end of the war they were plenty who were quite worried that they would now be held liable for crimes they'd committed in winning it. And these are just the practical concerns. There was a strong streak of independency in the army. There was a lot of anger felt towards the king, who, they believed, had caused the war. So it's unsurprising to find calls from the army for strict crackdowns on Catholicism, toleration for all Protestant worship, and a harsh negotiating position with the king, which were all directly opposed to Hull's strategy. The officers shared many of these complaints. And when news of Parliament's decision broke and their men began to get openly mutinous, the officers took their men's side. A petition was drafted by the army, and it listed three core demands. Firstly, they wanted to be paid. The parliamentary motion made no allowances for any wages which were in arrears, or promised to pay the men until they were disbanded. They wanted what was owed to them, and they wanted pensions for the injured and for the families of killed soldiers. Secondly, they demanded indemnity for any crimes committed under arms. And finally, no one would be made to fight outside the kingdom against their will. This meant Ireland. Many leading officers signed it, including plenty of independent officers like Colonel Oakey, Henry Ireton and Thomas Pride. This petition was presented to a parliamentary commission which had travelled to the army's muster at Saffron Walden, They'd arrived expecting to get on with the job of disbanding most of the force and building a new Irish army. Instead, they were handed the petition, told to take it back to Parliament, and not to let the tent flap hit them on the way out. Gentles proposes that had Halls and the Presbyterian faction in Parliament, quote, 
addressed these demands in a timely fashion, and handled the soldiers with tact, they might have achieved their goal of dissolving the new model army. As it was, tact was not their concern. End quote. Halls reacted to these fairly reasonable demands with outraged fury. He hadn't considered resistance from the army in his plan to deal with the king. He needed their immediate and total cooperation, and any resistance or negotiation from them threatened his plan for the peace settlement. It has to be said that, in this moment, Oliver Cromwell was not a calming presence. He'd been deathly ill over the winter, and appears to have been genuinely depressed once he recovered. He was disappointed by the course of events, and once again was considering emigration, either to the New World or to the continent. But by this point, he was well enough to return to the Commons. While he sympathised with the grievances of the army, he still firmly believed that discipline had to be maintained. He was deeply concerned about the growing mutinous feeling among the troops and the lower officers, and while agreeing with most of the points in their petition, Antonia Fraser notes that Cromwell, quote, felt that the common soldiers had nevertheless gone distinctly too far in presenting their own petition, end quote. Now back in the Commons, for the fateful debate on the petition, he stood and put his hand on his heart, and swore, quote, in the presence of Almighty God, before whom he stood, that he knew that the army would disband and lay down their arms at their door whensoever they should command them. Now this is interesting, because Cromwell was completely wrong. His contemporary enemies would later accuse him of deliberately fanning the flames of this crisis for personal and political gain. But Fraser suggests that actually Cromwell was just very bad at predicting political events. But he was also very lucky and quite good at reacting to them. So to his enemies, Cromwell looked like a master manipulator, a Palpatine-esque figure who was weaving sinister plots to serve his aims, working both sides of the conflict until he could seize power for himself, when instead he made bad political prophecies and reacted well in a crisis. So it's entirely likely that Cromwell either genuinely believed his oath, or hoped that his promise that the army was loyal and should not be feared would be enough to win Parliament over. In which case, with their grievances settled, the new model probably would have done exactly what Cromwell promised they would. But if this last option was Cromwell's intention, he badly misjudged the situation and how little sympathy Parliament had for the army. With Cromwell suggesting that Parliament still held the army's confidence and the army would do what Parliament said, the Presbyterians passed a vote, ordering the petition to be suppressed. Again, Halls had not accounted for a very important element the politicisation of the army. Throughout March, the cavalry regiments of the army began to elect agitators, to represent their grievances to their officers and to Parliament. This trend began with eight regiments based in East Anglia, who elected two agitators from each regiment. They condemned the actions of Parliament and demanded the redress of their grievances. The election of agitators spread like wildfire through the army, with regiments of infantry quickly joining their cavalry comrades and choosing their own representatives. Among the ranks of the army grew another political cause, the levellers. Once again, we aren't talking about a formal group or political party, but defined more by shared causes and association. The name, leveller, was attributed to them by their enemies, just like Puritan, 
and leading levelers would try and deny the label. But here we are, four centuries later, calling them levelers. Their enemies accuse the group of political radicalism, and of wanting the complete levelling of social rank, and the redistribution of private property and land. The most prominent levellers always denied and disputed this accusation, though that didn't stop their enemies, nor does it stop some historians viewing the group as proto-socialist. So what did the levellers say they wanted? The general principles can be summed up as religious toleration, free trade, justice reform, a written constitution, and the widening of the franchise. All utterly insane proposals which would undermine the very structure of society and could only lead to the complete breakdown of law and order and the great chain of being. I'm sure you can agree. Essentially, we can see in the levellers the logical extension of Parliament's own rhetoric. They'd fought the civil war against the king on the basis that Parliament, and especially the commons, represented the will of the people, and that of the three pillars of the kingdom, the monarch, lords, and commons, it was the commons which best governed for the common weal. Parliament had spent five years championing representative politics. The levellers simply carried this argument one or several dozen steps forward. The commons should not just be the first among equals, between the monarch and the lords, but above both. The other two pillars would have their role, of course. Outright republicanism was rarely suggested at this point, but neither should be able to restrain or overrule the commons. The second major principle of level of thought, intertwined with the political question and also an extension of parliamentary rhetoric, was the importance of individual liberty from tyranny. This overlapped easily with the agenda of the independence, and that's no coincidence. Many levellers started their careers in the independent churches in London. The independents wanted religious toleration, they wanted the freedom for each congregation to worship as they saw fit without a state-mandated clergy clamping down on them and, I don't know, branding their cheeks or cropping their ears. Securing individual political liberty would help ensure individual religious liberty. Leveller ideas found fertile soil wherever the New Model Army gathered. The demand for political reform and a greater say in government for ordinary men was very appealing to the thousands of ordinary men currently in a dispute with their government. What came to be termed the army levellers would begin to throw their weight around in the growing crisis. But, just to throw another wrench into the complicated mess of 1647, we should be wary of overemphasizing the importance of leveller ideas in the army. Many of the complaints of the army had nothing to do with high-minded ideals of liberty and constitutional politics. A lot of them just wanted to be paid and not sent to fight and die in Ireland against their will. But many of the agitators in the army were levellers, and these ordinary grievances fit neatly with larger leveller principles. So with the army becoming increasingly mutinous and increasingly political, when Parliament ordered that the army petition be suppressed and no one should share or sign it, well, that didn't work. No one listened. By the end of March, it was clear that Parliament's attempt to silence the army had failed, and that the petition was still being widely discussed. So Halls escalated. He once again used the Commons to try and maintain control. Another motion accused the agitators of deliberately pushing the army into a distemper and mutiny, and called the soldiers who resisted Parliament's demands enemies of the state. Commissioners were dispatched to the army's headquarters in Essex 
to identify the writers of the petition and arrest them. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? This declaration of dislike was, to quote Gentles, the crossing of the Rubicon for Halls and the Presbyterians. The declaration not only tried to revoke their right to petition, a bedrock of English politics, but offended their honour by calling them enemies of the state. Again, they had just won the war for Parliament. They expected to be paid as they were promised, they'd invoked their ancient right as Englishmen to petition, and now they were being accused of being enemies of the state? How else were they meant to make their wishes known? The commissioners arrived at Saffron Walden and informed the army that, no, Parliament was not accepting their petition, and they had a choice to either disband or serve in Ireland under officers of Parliament's choosing, notably not Oliver Cromwell and not Sir Thomas Fairfax. Sir Edward Massey would be returned to command as Lieutenant General of Horse, replacing Cromwell, and Skippen would be elevated to Field Marshal in place of Fairfax. In response, 200 officers gathered in a nearby church insisted that Fairfax preside over their meeting and began to chant, All, all, Fairfax and Cromwell and we all go. The next day, 
Another petition was drafted and signed and sent to Parliament stating this new position. Halls fundamentally misjudged the vulnerability of his position. Parliament half-heartedly tried to appease the army and in April voted to pay six weeks' pay, which was far less than many were owed and far too late to be seen as a gesture of goodwill. Instead of attempting to placate the new model army, the Presbyterians decided to crush them. Halls began to bring together four different fonts of manpower into one Presbyterian parliamentary army. The first was, of course, the London-trained bands. The second was the army of Major General Points, stationed in the north of England and commanding one of the few remaining forces which hadn't disbanded or merged with the new model. The third came from the new model itself, those divisions and regiments which had accepted the parliamentary ordinance and were deemed suitably loyal to Parliament. The fourth were those officers and men who had been removed from command during the new modelling of the army. When the new model ordinance had combined dozens of undermanned forces into more substantial commands, a lot of officers were surplus to requirements, wished well in their future endeavours, and were sacked. Now these men loitered in the capital, nursing grudges against their former comrades in the new model army. These men are sometimes called the reformados. There was a fifth element which Halls was eager to bring to bear against the new model army. Just months after they had finally left the kingdom, the Scots would be invited back into England. But as we've seen, the Covenanters were no longer sure that their interests, and the interests of Scotland, were best served by aligning themselves with a faction of the English Parliament. Besides, they had their own political problems to deal with. After the Declaration of Dislike, the politicisation of the army was unstoppable, even by their officers. Not that many officers wanted to try. Especially among the junior officers, sympathy for their men was strong, and the accusations and the insults of the Declaration applied to them as well. Up to this point, it feels like the new model was acting reactively, on the defensive, and in response to moves by Halls and the Parliamentary Presbyterians. But in May 1647, this would abruptly change. Oliver Cromwell, deeply unhappy with the growing crisis, began to consider leaving England entirely. The cause of Charles Louis, Elector Palatine, was still a very pressing affair, even with the Thirty Years' War now in its 29th year. Maybe this was the next godly cause which the Almighty Lord wanted Cromwell to pursue. He had many meetings with the nephew of the king he had just defeated, and it's entirely possible that Cromwell would have sailed from England in 1647. But instead, in May, Cromwell was appointed as one of the four commissioners sent to Essex to try and settle the growing crisis with the army. All four were both MPs and commissioned officers in that army, Cromwell, Henry Ireton, Philip Skippen, and Charles Fleetwood. On the 15th of May, Skippen and Cromwell presided over a meeting of 200 officers. Aside from having to tell a few speakers off for being too passionate, men like Oakey, Waller, and John Lambert, their demands were very reasonable. They wanted more than the six weeks' pay already promised, they wanted to be able to petition. Parliament should seriously consider their earlier petition, and Parliament shouldn't allow any further attacks on the honour of the army. The next day, the commissioners reported back to Parliament that the army's grievances were deeply felt, and that they, the commissioners, sympathised with the grievances, though not the unrest, and they suggested that the army would disband peacefully 
if its grievances were addressed. Parliament took this suggestion, ran with it, and then promptly tripped over and fell flat on its face. Cromwell and the other commissioners looked on in horror as the Houses took their suggestions, offered meagre concessions, and then continued on their hostile path, insisting on service in Ireland and the disbanding of the remaining regiments, with only the promise that the rest of their grievances would be settled, just as soon as they gave up all their leverage and agreed to Parliament's demands. Fairfax communicated Parliament's latest offer to the officers, who rejected it. The commander-in-chief was only precariously maintaining his authority over the increasingly mutinous troops. Fairfax wrote to Parliament, informing them that, I am forced to yield to something out of order, to keep the army from disorder, or worse, inconveniences. Fairfax migrated his headquarters to Bury St Edmunds, and there he fell sick. Without the steadying hand of Fairfax, events continued to spiral. Colonel Rainsborough's regiment, stationed at Portsmouth, heard rumours that Parliament was about to act against them. They mutinied, and marched on Oxford in order to take control of the former royalist capital and current home for much of the new model army's artillery. Rumours also began to spread that Parliament and the Presbyterian troops that answered to them were going to move the king, either to London or to hand him back to the Scots, so that the Scots could then invade and defeat the new model army. And then, at the end of May, one George Joyce, a cornet in Fairfax's own cavalry regiment, seized the initiative when he arrived at Holmby House to take custody over the king. Charles I was now in the hands of the army. Before we end this episode, I've included a link in the show notes to a survey. It's mostly a way for me to learn more about you, how you found the podcast, how you're finding the podcast, what you'd like to see more or less of, that kind of thing. It's only short, so if you have a few minutes to scroll through, I'd greatly appreciate it, and it will help guide the show. Also, at the end is a simple scale of interest in a project I've been thinking about for a couple of years now. A new, focused, highly produced podcast on the end of the British Empire. Focusing on a separate part of the Empire each season, with each episode consisting of narrative and clips of interviews with historians. Think the style of Fall of Civilizations meets the BBC's time travels. There's a lot more to it than that, but until things are in motion, that's all I can really say. So, once again, the link to the survey is in the episode description. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bristol, Bill Winkus, the Marquess of Hull, Steve Cloutier, and the Countess of Coventry, Linda Knowlton. If you'd like to join their ranks and, at a minimum, receive an ad-free RSS feed, go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, please recommend it to a friend or post about the show on social media. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. <laughs> 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.